Welcome everyone to Overcome Podcast. Um, today is is a very special uh, edition. Near we are recording this on the week of Thanksgiving, and um, I read this book, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, in one of those most difficult times of my life, and uh, make a big difference. And I'm so I'm really really happy to have today here Donald Robertson. Donald, welcome to Overcome Podcast. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Donald, first of all, thank you so much for um, recording this. I remember when I, I first approached you, you are very accessible, which I would say is sometimes rare to see a bestseller author to be so accessible like you. Um, some authors, they do not even reply unless it's a very famous podcast. But uh, so thank you very much for doing that. <laughs> That's all right. It's kind of my hope hobby and I, I just love talking to people about stoicism. Uh, I've always loved talking to people about it so uh, it's my pleasure. Awesome. Uh, I, as I said I was first introduced to stoicism in September 2020 when I had a major foot injury during a Brazilian judicial competition and I had to go through surgery to fix my foot. It was really a hard time, depressed and um, I really couldn't do a lot of things, so I got Audible. And I, the first book that I I listened actually because I prefer Audible for the most part was "Obstacle Is the Way" from Ryan Holiday and Tim Ferriss, right? And I was quite amazed by stoicism at that time. And then I got yours, "How to Think Like a Roman Emperor," and I was like, "Wow, why I didn't know about all this before?" <laughs> Uh, and, and that brought me to meditations of uh, Marcus Aurelius and, and mainly that part that says the mind adapts and converts to its own purpose the obstacle uh, to our acting the impediment of action advanced action what stands in the way becomes the way well, oh, that last part to me was uh, mind-blowing it changed a lot of things in my perce perception uh, mainly during that time dealing with pain dealing with uh, post-surgery struggle and I'm wondering if in your field uh, you teach, you write books, do you have a lot of those aha moments from readers or from students that go through this? Yeah, I mean, I've been involved with Stoicism for a pretty long time now, and uh, I've been writing books about it, teaching courses on it, speaking at conferences. So I'm in this unusual position of having spoken to many thousands of people over the years. I mean, we run an online course called Stoic Week about Stoicism. We've been running it for uh, about 10 years, and we reckon about 20,000 people altogether have done the online course. We gather feedback from most of them. And so we hear a lot of people saying that Stoicism was a big transformation for them. You know, sometimes in extreme cases, people will literally say that it saved their life. You know, maybe, you know, people are depressed and they're contemplating suicide and they say that stoicism was the thing that literally saved their life. Or like in your case, it helped them to, to deal with a, a really stressful injury, like a difficult time in their life. And interest in stoicism really spiked during the pandemic as well. So a lot of people saw it as a way of coping with the social challenges and psychological challenges that they faced um, during the middle of the pandemic. Yeah, no, that's a great point. No, that's a great point about uh, the, the pandemic. And the, the, coincidentally, the injury was 2020, which exactly in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, uh, yeah. And I was Yuri, your injury is like Epictetus. Um, he had a leg injury. You had a foot injury, yeah, is that yeah. right? Yeah, my, injury, my so, injury is called Lee's Frank injury, which is right on top of the foot. It's horrible. Uh-huh, yeah. And he talks about being lame or he had some kind of leg injury. We don't know exactly what. There's a story comes from generations later that Epictetus, when he was a slave, his master twisted his leg and broke it and left him crippled. But he certainly he talks about having some kind of problem with his leg and he's using stoicism as a way of dealing with that challenge and viewing his situation, his, his limitation or handicap in a more constructive way. So uh, you actually ha you have a, a similar, <laughs> uh, you had a similar problem to one of the most famous teachers of stoicism. Yes, yes, a wake up call for sure. Uh, now, besides writing about these principles, 
based on your research and what you read about Marcus Aurelius, uh, do you think that Marcus influenced others by leading them to adopt the same principles, or it was more something that he did on to his own persona? I think he influenced other people in several ways. So I've written three books about Marcus Aurelius in a row. Um, I wrote How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. It's like a self-help book. I wrote a graphic novel about his life that came out recently. And I've also written a prose biography of his life that's going to come out at the beginning of next year. Um, so I spent a long time really studying his life. And I think Marcus, like most Stoics, thought that he led mainly by example. If he wanted to teach other people, he needed to change himself, first of all, and, and become a, a living example to others. But he also, according to one of our sources, gave readings in public, at least on one occasion, of his of some philosophical text that he's written. Um, it looks like he, he would speak to his friends about Stoicism. There's a passage in the Meditations where he has an imaginary conversation, where he's preparing himself to talk to somebody who he refers to as my son. So he might mean that as a figure of speech, mm -hmm. because he called his friends my son, but he may also literally be mentally rehearsing what he's going to say to uh, Commodus, his, uh, his successor and son. Um, so he did tell people about Stoicism and impart some of the doctrines to them in a number of different ways. Um, and also we have what's alleged to be a speech by him where he doesn't really refer very clearly to Stoicism, but there are hints of Stoicism. There are ideas that seem a little bit influenced by Stoicism in a, a speech that he gives, he gives to the military um, at the beginning of a, a civil war that he faced. So it, it really came through in his, the example he set, but also at a personal level and also in political speeches that he gave, many different levels he was expressing Stoicism uh, during his life. Now, do you believe uh, or do you have evidence that was the Stoicism at that time widely used by the Roman society or was, mo was more focused on thinkers, military or elite in general? That's actually quite hard to say. Now, the first thing we should say is that Marcus Aurelius is the last famous Stoic. He's the last Stoic standing. Like, he's 500 years have, have elapsed since the, the Stoic school was founded by Zeno of Citium in 300 uh, BC in Athens. And Marcus dies in 180 AD. So his death is almost 500 years after the foundation of the, the Stoic school. Um, so the founders of Stoicism to Marcus would be uh, like the late medieval period to us, looking back, so a long time ago. Um, and so Stoicism must have had quite a big following, I think, in order to have survived such a long time yeah. and to have spread throughout so many different countries. But it's actually hard to measure. We don't have many indications of how many people followed Stoic philosophy. We are told Marcus seems to have had a number of friends and teachers who were Stoics. And one of the histories suggests that many young men um, started to get into philosophy, probably Stoicism, um, because they wanted to kind of emulate Marcus Aurelius. It, it, it wouldn't be a surprise to think that Stoicism kind of became trendy in a sense, during his reign, because he was such a, an important and influential figure. There, there's some debate about this, but to cut a long story short, my view is that Marcus um, would have been famous as a Stoic during his lifetime. Some people disagree with that. I, I think it's pretty clear, or very likely at least, that he was everyone in the empire, people throughout the empire were, um, it was very obvious to him that he and, was and, a, be, and them, people respected him and people liked him as well so I think that also contributes with yeah. uh, with that persona and trying to embody that uh, philosophy we're told that during his lifetime he was very popular um, I think it's in one of his private letters we have a cache of letters from him to his rhetoric tutor Marcus Cornelius Fronto and if I remember rightly, in one of those letters, Fronto mentions in passing that all over the place when he travels, people have pictures, paintings 
uh, of Marcus Aurelius in in their homes. Um, so his images everywhere. Um, he's a very popular emperor, and in subsequent generations um, later in the Roman Empire, he's generally looked back on as one of uh, the most admirable of emperors. He's an example to to live up to for subsequent uh, rulers in in the Roman Empire. Um, so he he was definitely a, a popular uh, figure. Yeah. Now you've been, as you said, been researching Stoicism for over twenty years. As far as uh, uh, your website, I've, I've looked at it, and you've written many many books, as you said. You are always engaged in the community. I see you always engaged in the community, educating and things like that about the the principles. Now, do you try to apply all those principles in your daily life? Yes, I can. Um... When I first began studying Stoicism and writing about it, most of the books, not all the books, but most of the books in Stoicism were written by professors of philosophy and classicists at universities, and they were pretty academic mm -hmm. books. And and some of those experts are still around. They're still they speak at our conferences. They're some of the leading scholars of Stoicism. And it surprised me that when I spoke to several of them, although they dedicated their life to the scholarly study of Stoic texts, they they hadn't really tried to follow it in daily life as a, a philosophy. And that surprises me because, for instance, if you read Epictetus in particular, but really any of the Stoics, but Epictetus in particular goes on and on and on and on to his students about how they, there's no point studying Stoicism unless you actually put it into practice yeah. consistently in daily life. So it seems surprising to me that anyone would spend decades studying those books and not try to follow it. So, of course, it, it's impossible really to be a perfect... The Stoics believed it was impossible to be perfectly wise. They thought no perfect sage had ever lived. Um, or sometimes they would say the ideal wise man is as rare as the Ethiopian phoenix which according to legend was born every 500 years like so they said it's there are there are no perfect wise men they thought everybody was flawed um but we can try our best we, it's an aspirational goal to be a, a stoic and to live wisely and i think many many more people these days try to follow stoic principles in their daily lives and one reason for that actually is um, and this is going leads us into another topic, um, but uh, one of the reasons is that cognitive psychotherapy was inspired by stoicism, and over the past fifty years or so, as cognitive therapy has gradually became mainstream and then became more and more influential, uh, I think we've seen more and more people influenced by therapy or by self-help books based on those ideas trying to put ideas into practice that are derived from stoicism so it becomes a, a much more normal idea to them to live according yeah, to some of these yeah but I'm super surprised as well uh, with the scholars that they don't walk the talk right because this is one of the first principles that Marcus talks about is leading by example so very surprising yeah it's, it's interesting um but I, I've definitely spoken to some prof university professors that told me that they, they never really thought of putting it into practice. Epictetus says that stu his students who are really, really into studying the texts and don't put it into practice are like people in ancient Greece who studied Homer and would comment on it and, and read a lot of meaning into the poetry. Like, I guess, a modern-day literary critic um, so he says, you guys are more like literary critics than actual philosophers. You know, you're just kind of analyzing the text, you know, and scrutinizing it really closely. But, you know, you're just going to become po like bookish, like nerds, um, you know, and that's not really what Zeno and Chrysippus and the originators of Stoicism had in mind. Yeah, but I, I, the reason why I ask this question is because there are some stoicism principles that are really hard to truly implement yeah. on your daily life. I mean, it's probably, it probably takes several years of consistent work and change your mindset to really adequate to that. For example, uh, on, the, on, the, on your book, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, there is a chapter five 
there is one topic that you highlight in a section about how to tolerate pain. It is a fascinating topic because it feels easier when you read, oh, it makes all sense, but it's really complicated to apply that, uh, that uh, resilience when it comes to pain. <laughs> I think um, everything, or most of the things that the Stoics say, I think people could potentially learn from certain experiences that we have in life. And the Stoics knew that. They thought that they were describing concepts and ideas that could be found in other parts of the world, in other religions and philosophies, because they thought um, this was a kind of perennial wisdom that it would be surprising if other people didn't discover these things. And for example, what the Stoics say about tolerating pain, I believe, um, based on my experience of uh, working with people with uh, chronic pain or coping with acute pain, that many people, not everyone, but many people who learn to cope with pain will figure out some similar strategies. Um, we can do research on that by getting people who suffer from chronic pain, like back pain, for example, and just asking them how they cope with it, what sort of techniques or strategies they employ. And you'll usually find that a handful of them have figured out some of these same ideas. There'll be some people who have figured out that accepting pain rather than trying to hide from it or struggle against it seems to, to work for them. Um, or uh, learning to view it from a different perspective might be something that they find beneficial. And I also think you're an athlete, um, from what I understand, that you're, you're a martial artist. And you know I think anyone who does activities like sports or other activities that require endurance and uh, overcoming fatigue probably will learn some similar strategies Absolutely. in order in order just to to excel at the uh, the ex uh, the exercise that they're doing, yeah, the, yeah. the sport that they're Absolutely. doing. I think that there are uh, I think there are different types of pain. There are the pain that you are chasing when you look for that muscle soreness pain or the fatigue because you had a great training. That pain you are chasing that pain. Now there is the pain of something that happened like an accident in training, and that's like a physical pain that you were not expecting. Now now how you. What you do to cope that pain is, is a little bit different, which in your book you talk about cognitive di distancing to do pain management. Can you elaborate more on that? Yeah, and well, let me back up for just a little bit uh, to begin with. I could be wrong. I'm not, I don't pretend to be an expert on, on pain, actually. Anxiety is more my area. But it seems to me that coping with something like an injury uh, could could be viewed as a way of exercising and developing certain cognitive skills in the same way that overcoming fatigue when you're lifting weights or something like that um, requires kind of grit and determination and a willingness to endure at least discomfort um, or something approaching pain even or fatigue um, you have to be willing to push yourself through uncomfortable experiences in order to do a few more repetitions where you're lifting very heavy weights. Um, and you do that in order to build more strength and more endurance. But in the same way, if you break your leg or have some other kind of injury, you're building uh, cognitive muscle, if you like, by learning to cope with it. it it's a different kind of process, yep. but I think there are, there are still some parallels. Now, you mentioned cognitive distancing. That is psychobabble. It's jargon, right? Um, we don't have a nice English word to describe it. It's a subtle concept. So we have to make up a word. We have to make up a name, cognitive distancing, to describe it in cognitive therapy. Cognitive distancing was described by Aaron T. Beck, the founder, or one of the founders of cognitive behavioral therapy. And he said... Um, cognitive therapy works by helping people to question the evidence for unhealthy beliefs that they have. So somebody believes nobody likes me, everybody hates me, and the therapist might say, "Well, where's the evidence for that? You know, is there where's the evidence that everybody hates you? Is there ev any evidence that might contradict that?" And they'll get someone to to weigh it up. Now Beck said there's a problem with this technique 
which is that in order to weigh up the evidence, somebody has to have a, enough detachment to view these highly emotional beliefs as if they are hypotheses, as if they might be wrong. Someone who's so wedded to the, to the belief that everyone hates them, um, that they can't see beyond it, they've got kind of tunnel vision for it, they're not even going to look at the evidence. So they need to kind of loosen up their attachment to the belief a little bit before they can begin looking at the evidence for and against it. They have to be willing to evaluate it. They have to treat it not as a fact, but as something written in stone, but as a kind of hypothesis that may or may not be true. So there's this kind of loosening up process at the beginning of cognitive therapy. And Beck calls that distancing. And he says, uh, it requires changing your relationship with your thoughts and beliefs. So imagine that you're wearing colored glasses, like rose-tinted glasses, and or it could be blue, sad, depressive colored glasses. But you've been wearing them for such a long time, uh, Yuri, that you just think the world is blue. Yeah. You think that guy over there is blue, and the dog and cat are blue, and the house is blue, and everything's blue. You don't make any distinction between the blueness and the external world because you've had these glasses on for years and you you just take it for granted now, that's how everything looks. And then one day someone comes along and they knock the glasses off and suddenly you realise that the blueness was in the lenses and not in the world itself. Now, the belief that everybody hates me, nobody likes me is like a lens through which I'm looking. And Beck said cognitive distancing is, is like taking those lenses off and looking at them rather than looking at the world through them. We have to be able to, our beliefs, our thoughts, um, almost as if we're looking at someone else having those thoughts and beliefs and be open to the possibility that there might be uh, blue glasses or green glasses or red glasses that we could look at the world. There might be different ways of interpreting events potentially. So seeing our beliefs as just one of many perspectives that could be adopted that's cognitive distancing now what's really important is Beck thought that was an essential precursor to cognitive therapy um, but a later generation of researchers asked themselves well what would happen if we just spent more time doing that like they wondered if maybe cognitive distancing was more important than Aaron Beck had realised and they discovered that when you train people more extensively and taking a step back and viewing their beliefs from a distance, they don't necessarily have to begin questioning the evidence for and against them because that shift in perspective tends to dilute the intensity of our emotions and it also tends to uh, give us more cognitive flexibility. Um, if I realise that I'm wearing blue coloured glasses and I could be wearing green glasses or red glasses or no glasses at all, then knowing that there are different perspectives allows me to think more creatively and to problem solve and think laterally. It gives me freedom or flexibility cognitively. So people who gain that distance, are their emotions are less overwhelming and intense, and they're also better at creative problem solving and lateral thinking. And so that technique in its own, and those pioneers that said, what happens if we just miss more, realized that what they were doing resembled something that already existed. They realized that it was a bit like Buddhist mindfulness meditation, because when you're practicing meditation, you have to observe your own mind in a detached way. And if you're meditating and you suddenly think nobody likes me, everybody hates me, or you know, what if I get hit by a bus tomorrow or something like that, rather than arguing with those thoughts or becoming absorbed in them, a good meditator will take a step back and view them as if they were just clouds passing across the sky, view them in a, a kind of detached way. So these researchers realized there was a connection between mindfulness meditation and this technique that we call cognitive distancing in psychotherapy yeah I, I think that I somehow used this 19 years ago when I moved to US I'm originally from Brazil but I moved to US 19 years ago and some of the friends uh, moved uh, at the same time and we work uh, in a large uh, corporation in US and uh, 
my my mindset was always to think about self-improvement and um, some of these friends of mine were like well I'm not really doing well at work because I think there is prejudice because I'm an immigrant and I'm like, well I'm also an immigrant and I don't see that you've been criticized because your English sucks my English sucks too but at least I'm, tra I'm taking classes to improve and you're doing nothing so it, uh, it took years for this person to evolve because his mindset was always on that nobody likes me type of mindset while I was looking at that feedback and and thinking how can I get better right I think there's a very very simple way of in introducing this flexibility to people and that is to say that most of the things we view as a catastrophe in life most of the things that people become depressed about that they view as extreme misfortune um might be viewed by someone else like you as an opportunity or they might be viewed by someone else as bad but not catastrophically bad so say someone loses their job one guy might think this is awful it's absolutely catastrophic it's like the end of the world another guy might think this is my opportunity to start a whole new path in life and maybe start a business or go to university, go back to university or something like that. It's an opportunity rather than a threat. Or someone else might look at it and think it's bad, it kind of sucks, but it's not awful. It's not as bad like, as the first guy thought it was. So there's at least three significantly different perspectives that we can adopt on, on almost any setback that we experience, I think. Yeah, it, it reminds me of that sentence uh, from Seneca. Beware of aggravating your troubles yourself and of making your position worse by your complaints. Grief is light when opinion does not exaggerate. This is, this is super powerful. That's exactly the situation, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's definitely the case that we, and it, I think one of the things that teaches us that, again, is experience. As we get older, I think in a way there are two types of people in the world, Yuri. There are people, I think, very simply, uh, you know, and I say this kind of half joking, but half serious. When By the time you reach 40 years old, you should have started to look back on what's happened so far. And I think uh, some people don't do that. And some people do do it and learn from the things that they've encountered so far. And I think one of the most basic things that most of us can learn by reviewing our life so far is that many of the setbacks that we've experienced are misfortunes, like the relationships that have broken up or ended the accidents we've had, the jobs that we've lost, the exams that we've failed, all these terrible things that seem catastrophic at the time. When we look back on them, they usually don't seem like the end of the world. They seem simply as a stepping stone to, to something else that happens. We, we move past all of these things. The end of one relationship usually just leads to the beginning of another relationship. Um, although at the time it seems catastrophic, like the end of the world. So I think one of the things that can give us this more constructive perspective is just looking back on our own life, uh, looking back on the things that happened to us when we were teenagers and how we moved on from them. Not always, but in many cases, I think we can learn a, a degree of detachment and decatastrophizing by looking back on our previous experience in that way. Yeah, no, I agree. It's just complicated because I think that things like uh, you said and Seneca said on that sentence, is really the opposite of what is happening in society nowadays where people lean towards complain and playing victim and they really do not try to reflect on okay how can i use this opportunity yeah. to get better it's really complicated i think this is partly the influence of the media and stuff other people say like other people because of the language that they use um often like to exaggerate. Um, people like to share their sorrow um, <laughs> and sensationalize things. So we use rhetoric, we use colorful language. Um, we see this with clients, I may have a client in therapy um, who's giving a presentation at work and I say, how did it go? 
and he said it was awful it was a catastrophe you know I, I i made a terrible mistake and somebody shot me down in flames like and would just open up and swallow me and i might say to him could you just like describe the same event but not use any of these metaphors don't <laughs> use any of this kind of crap and he might end up saying i gave a presentation and i i said something and someone told me they disagreed with me and that might be all that happened yeah. right <laughs> yeah. but the way that he described it at the beginning is much more colorful right. and dramatic and we do that all the time we use language in this emotive way we use rhetoric um and we use it to influence our own emotions and we use it to uh influence the emotions of other people if you look at the news especially increasingly today there's more idiot editorializing in in the news than there was when I was a young guy and now um, if you go to YouTube and you look up CNN or Fox News you'll see it says things like Tucker Carlson is aghast at something or <laughs> Don Lemon is shocked so they're telling us what to feel, what to feel exactly yeah. shocked or horrified or stunned or you know I don't need the news to tell me to feel shocked by things mm -hmm. but they, they want us to be scared and angry like, because it makes us pay more attention to what they're saying. Yeah. And this is always the case. Orators, sophists, public speakers in the ancient world realized if they wanted to get the attention of a big crowd of people, they would try to stimulate their emotions mm -hmm. and create feelings of fear and anger. So I think we have to be careful that we're not sucked into that. Um, it's like people are trying to sell us something. You know, yeah. we shouldn't be gullible enough to, to be duped. You, you, and so the society we live in, um, unfortunately, is constantly trying to kind of brainwash us uh, into being scared and angry all the time. It's, it's fascinating because as much as I read uh, all these books, uh, Marcus Aurelius was so ahead of his time that uh, one of the things that he did that was, that was super interesting, and you mentioned that in the book, is uh, he practiced... Uh, situations that he was stressing himself to better understand the reactions in worst case scenarios. It's like that is is, is like moving ahead of the curve to look. Okay, what are the potential outcomes and how bad I will feel if those things uh, take place? Um, can you talk more about this preparation that uh, he he used to to really face adversity and be ready uh, if that, if that moment comes? The Stoics thought this was important in many levels, that we should try and prepare in advance for adversity. Um, so sometimes people say, how can you use Stoicism to cope when something bad happens and, and you're feeling depressed or anxious about it? And actually, the, 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 mo the most important answer is perhaps in a way the least helpful answer at that time, which is that the Stoics would say, you're too late, you should already have prepared. <laughs> Like, you know, the best thing to do would have been to have prepared a year ago. Like, so, for example, a good example would be the pandemic. Um, many people were just like shocked and confused at the beginning. But I mean, the Stoics might have said to us, it's not a big surprise that there would be a pandemic eventually. Like, epidemiologists have been predicting for a long time that something like that might happen because of increased international travel. Um, and it might happen again, uh, you know, years or decades in the future, there may be another pandemic. Uh, it shouldn't seem like an inconceivable uh, thing. So the Stoics would say the wise man would prepare in advance for events like this. He would think maybe there's going to be another war in my lifetime. You know, maybe there's going to be a, another uh, epidemic or a, a pandemic in my lifetime. And he would look around at the things that have happened throughout history and the things that he sees happening to other people in other countries, and he would prepare for them in advance. Seneca says he would prepare for exile, poverty, disease, and the most obvious thing to prepare for is death, because so far, every single person in history who's come before us has died. Like, so one thing the Stoics would say we, we know for certain <laughs> on the basis of our experience <laughs> is that it looks like everyone uh, dies. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be, it would be a big surprise if one day somebody doesn't die. Um, so we, we, we're pretty sure that we're all going to die eventually. We should prepare for that and uh, picture it in advance as if it's about to happen. 
or in some you know for certain types of things as if they've already happened so that we can rehearse mm -hmm. how we would cope with them more with a more philosophical attitude and that's the only way to to strengthen ourselves this idea is in aesop's fables marcus aurelius had read aesop's fables and he mentions the story of the town mouse and the country mouse but one of the other fables is the story of the fox and the boar and the boar is sharpening his tusks against the side of a tree and the fox laughs at him and says why are you sweating scraping your tusks so hard for so long against that tree to sharpen them there's no need to do it there are no hunters around there's no one threatening you you're not in any danger and the boar says to him that's true we're perfectly safe right now however when I hear the sound of the hunter's horns and the barking of their dogs, then it will be too late to sharpen my tusks. <laughs> Fantastic, uh, yeah. So just the story, they say you, you have to prepare in advance during times of peace. You have to prepare for war because this is your only opportunity. When war comes or when misfortune comes, it's too late. Yeah. Uh, and then you have to you know struggle to, to do damage limitation. So the, the Stoics thought we should prepare in advance. Um, and some of these ideas, you know, Marcus and like most youths in the ancient world uh, were martial artists in, in Greece and, and Rome. So Marcus boxed, he wrestled, um, he did the Pankration, mm -hmm. and uh, he talks about this as a metaphor for his philosophy of yeah. life. He says that when you're sparring with an opponent, um, and they throw you to the ground you don't get angry with them and take it personally right. uh, you treat it as a learning opportunity like, and you watch them more carefully next time and you try to improve your skills but he says this is how you should view um, misfortune in life like if you break your leg or something you should view it as a sparring partner like as somebody that's giving you an opportunity to improve your cognitive skills, yeah. your philosophical coping skills, anything that befalls you, he says, um, is like uh, uh, the actions of a, a sparring partner that's been sent to you by the gods, and rather than getting resentful and upset about it, you should be focusing on it as an opportunity to learn. I think that nowadays uh, people are so into this idea that you have to be 100% positive all the time that they don't want even to visualize the negative aspect and by denying that one day something bad will happen they don't get ready for that yeah that's we this idea of kind of positive thinking is quite toxic and it's known to be in modern psychotherapy um this the kind of crude idea of positive thinking is known to the, the people who talk most about that are usually clients who are clinically depressed <laughs> The the ones the other ones that are most convinced that positive thinking is a good idea, like and it is usually not working out that well for them. And I could give you many examples of different ways in which it doesn't work. But one of them is Yuri. My expertise is in treating anxiety disorders. Now we've known for well over half a century. Um, one of the most robust findings in the whole field of psychotherapy research is that anxiety abates or wears off naturally through prolonged repeated exposure under normal conditions. So if someone has a phobia for spiders and they uh, allow themselves to go into a room with spiders, they'll get really anxious. But if they wait and stay in the room, their anxiety will gradually, gradually start to come down again. And if they do that repeatedly, eventually their anxiety will wear off and they'll cure their, pho their phobia through what we call exposure therapy, repeated prolonged exposure. And they, the ancient Stoics knew that. So people who try to think positively and don't allow themselves to imagine bad things happening never give their brain the opportunity to engage in normal emotional processing. Like when we experience scary things, it's normal for those anxiety feelings to peak and then slowly wear off. Um, that's natural. It's like digesting food. 
um, you know, you chew something and you 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 swallow it, and then your body will naturally digest. Um, people who engage in positive positive thinking are kind of giving themselves emotional indigestion, like they're not allowing uh, their brain to digest unpleasant experiences and and move beyond them. And that's why when something bad happens, they have a really hard time to cope and to get back because they never really prepare mentally uh, enough yeah. for that moment. And that makes total sense. Many levels, many levels. In terms of just this natural, we call it habituation, so the, the anxiety wearing off. In terms of giving themselves an opportunity to problem solve. So you need to imagine or put yourself in difficult situations through trial and error to figure out different things you could do or say in order to cope with them. And if you think positively and you never imagine any problems, you never give yourself a chance to figure out creative ways of solving those problems. And uh, it also prevents you from being able to change your thinking and practice looking at a situation from different perspectives either. So you, you trap yourself, um, you deny yourself uh, learning opportunities um, and you know you stunt your growth emotionally if you uh, avoid thinking about negative uh, thoughts and experiences. Yeah, makes total sense. Now I, I talk with uh, many athletes, Olympic athletes in this uh, podcast and one of those uh, athletes, actually a couple brought up one thing that they do prior to a competition is like they use something called visualization, right? They said, well, I visualize myself uh, entering the mat, competing, winning. I get so involved on this, I even start sweating, uh, leaving that. So when I get there, to me, it's like I was already there. So I, I perform much better when I visualize everything prior to the competition. I even visualize mm -hmm. myself winning. And they said it works pretty well. Now, I don't yeah. recall stoicism having this type of thing, do they? They talk about imagining catastrophes and misfortunes as if they're happening now. They don't use the word, they don't have the, the word visualization as such, but they talk about imagining or contemplating events as if they were happening now. So it, they probably meant something similar to visualization. And they also talk about writing uh, about events. I guess people do journaling today mm -hmm. and other written cognitive therapy techniques. The Epictetus talks about one of the other Stoics writing letters addressed to himself about um, illness, poverty, um, and he calls these letters eulogies to poverty. He would write a letter describing a more constructive, positive, optimistic way of thinking about these potential setbacks. So not denying that they happen, but trying to imagine good that could come out of them mm -hmm. to, to imagine constructive ways of, of dealing with them. And that's the constructive or the positive aspect of stoicism. Uh, not imagining that nice things might happen or happy things, but imagining unpleasant or difficult or challenging things happening, but seeing ways that we could move beyond them and learn from them and grow stronger as a result. For stoics, the most important thing in life, though, is to develop their own character. So ironically, any setback or any misfortune is potentially like a training opportunity for developing self-discipline and courage um, and you know, uh, moral wisdom and these character traits that the Stoics uh, think we should admire. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, but I, I fully agree. Nowadays, uh, people are so engaged on this positive thinking. And I think that it's easier for them to think positive on everything because they don't really have to contemplate different scenarios. And if you think about society nowadays, they are encouraged to multitask, which is a huge problem. And I think that with COVID-19 and lockdowns and everything, they did this much more because now they are in Zoom meetings and they do not turn on their cameras. So they are on their phone writing emails and this breaks one of the main principles of stoicism which is be here now right uh, uh, yeah. according marcus Aurelio meditations remind yourself that it is not the future not the past which waits upon you but always the present and this present will seem smaller to you if you 
uh, circumscribe by defining and isolating it. You know, and, yeah. and you also quote this on your book, Stoicism and the Art of Happiness. So I think that's that's truly important. Be present. I think so. And I was going to say as well, it seems to me that people who become too dependent on positive thinking often become quite angry as a result. So, for example, we know that people who suffer from narcissistic personality disorder are often prone to bouts of anger because they have a very inflated, very positive self-image. So someone who's very narcissistic might think they're the smartest, the most talented, um, you know, the most handsome, the most creative person in the room. Um, but then when things don't work out for them, they get confused and they think, I don't understand. Say they ask a girl out on a date and she rejects them. Um, so a narcissist will get very angry when that happens. Because they, rather than thinking, well, maybe she just didn't find me attractive, they'll think, you know, there's something wrong here. This shouldn't be the case. It's, you know, like, this shouldn't be happening to me. And they'll resent it and get quite bitter and angry. And I, I think positive thinking, the dark side of positive thinking, is it, it, it resembles narcissism in the sense that it sets people up for experiencing anger and intense frustration when the positive things don't work out as they hope they might. So someone imagines winning a competition or they imagine passing an exam. And it might be nice to do that and it might be useful in some ways, but if they become too dependent on it and they lose the competition or fail the exam, they may respond with frustration and anger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. That's true. But do you also agree that uh, we have a huge problem when it comes to not be present now, like uh, Marcus uh, preached so much about not talk, not thinking too much about the past or not really worry about the future, but execute things now? Seneca says something beautiful about this. It's one of my favorite passages. He's talking about grazing animals like deer. And he says, when a deer sees a predator on the horizon, um, it will panic, defecate, like its heart rate will start pounding, it will run away. Um, but then when the predator's gone, it doesn't take that long before this animal will relax and just start grazing again. Um, and Seneca says, humans aren't like that. Like, when we worry about something, we carry on worrying about it. We worry about things that never happen. We ruminate about things that are long over, they're water under the bridge. So a deer sees a lion, it panics, it freaks out, it runs away. And then when the lion's gone, it goes. the deer goes back to normal. But uh, a person will continue worrying about it and ruminating for years afterwards. Uh, you know, so we keep perpetuating. Seneca says our greatest asset um, our ability to think about the future and think about the past is also, in a sense, our greatest weakness. Our greatest strength is also our greatest weakness. You know, it, it's what makes human beings human beings. It's what gives us this tremendous potential to think in the abstract. But it's also extremely damaging because we worry about things that never happen and we continue to ruminate about things that were over a long, long time ago. Yeah, I think yeah, I think that he he said something like, "We suffer more in our mind than in reality," something like that, right? Yeah, that's a that's one of my favorite quotes, and it's true. You know, again, in modern psychotherapy, we know that training people to become more grounded in the present moment, we can teach people little techniques that help them to do that. Um, the, in many different ways, that can benefit people, and it can form part of a treatment strategy for helping people to deal with clinical depression or clinical anxiety. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, so if you were giving uh, some tips, like top five tips for someone that just got your book and is starting to practice a little bit more on the daily basis, right? Because there is a lot of history, which is amazing to go to go through the orange. Yeah. I like this book in particular because you do give some guidelines as far as how to implement. But if you were enumerate like the top five things that will be important to start practicing more 
if he wants to be more aligned with stoicism what would be those okay so in the first book that i wrote about stoicism i tried to kind of list all the techniques that i could find in, in the stoic texts and i listed about 18. so the first thing is there's like a bunch of techniques in stoicism not just one or two but there's probably at least 18 maybe 20 or more distinct psychological techniques. so let's just pick five of them so number one let's start with the, the hardest one the most <laughs> challenging one but i think possibly one of the most powerful ones I think people need to face up to the prospect of their own death. Like, I think we are born in a society where we are surrounded by rhetoric, as we mentioned earlier. Um, society conspires against us to brainwash us with propaganda, like in the media and so on, social media, sending us all these messages. We live in a society where we're taught to be egotistical, narcissistic, hedonistic, consumerism, celebrity culture we get bombarded with all this stuff so one of the things that can snap us out of this trance is a brush with death not everybody but in many cases it's when people like have a a, a close encounter with um danger or illness um that they snap out of it and they reevaluate their life and they begin to think that maybe some of the things that they used to believe were important aren't really as important as they thought they were and rather than waiting until you're you know uh, 80 years old and on your deathbed i think it's better to anticipate that and visualize like in a christmas carol by charles dickens ebenezer scrooge is taken by the ghost of uh, christmas yet to come and he shows him his own grave in the future and that snaps scrooge out of his uh, very um what's the expression uh materialistic mm-hmm. uh greedy way of thinking makes him reappraise all his priorities in life so contemplating our own mortality another a really simple technique is i think self-help self-improvement literature is quite complex it, it confuses people there's too much of it in some ways people read dozens of self-help books and then never put any of it into practice no. so what i think most people would benefit just from doing one really simple thing which is to consider the long-term consequences of their actions more carefully that's all my and the stoics advise us to do this so they say imagine that you're when you're making a decision um about activities you're undertaking or when you're thinking about your day ahead imagine you're standing at a fork in the road and on one side you would allow fear or anger to guide you and on the other side it would be endurance and self-discipline and moral wisdom and the virtues that would be guiding you and think about the longer term consequences of going down one path versus the other path so when you um are indulging in some habit or train of thought ask yourself what the long-term consequences would be if you continue to do that every day like think further into the future is one of the things i would advise people to do um another thing is to have role models the stoics thought that we need to look at other people or even look at historical or fictional characters and study what it is that we admire about them in order to learn the qualities that we would potentially come to admire in ourselves. Mm-hmm. There's no other way to have self-esteem uh, except to studies that we actually cherish and value. And we, we, we usually do that, first of all, by looking at other people. We look at other people and think, wow, like, I really, like, look at what that guy did. That's amazing. Like, and if we could have some of the qualities that we admire in other people, then we'll gain our own self-respect. Yep. We can look at the mirror, like, and, and have a, a sense of a healthy sense of pride or uh, accomplishment when we we see ourselves, rather than just a kind of empty feeling. Um, another important technique, I think, is to the, what we call the view from above. So we know that when people become angry or depressed or anxious they tend to engage in what we call selective thinking and they narrow down their scope of attention. So the Stoics trained themselves to broaden their attention. They would do that in a number of different ways. 
but one was just by imagining events as if they saw them from a mountaintop or looking down on them from very high above. So this elevated helicopter perspective, looking down on events or picturing your own life as if it's part of the whole history of the universe and uh, as if the the planet Earth is just a tiny speck within the vastness of the cosmos. That helps us to gain a, a broader perspective and a sense of detachment from events that, that might be overwhelming otherwise. And then finally, I'd say to practice being continually mindful of the way that our thoughts, actions, and feelings interact with one another. And in particular, as the Stoics say, to remind ourselves that it's not things that upset us, but rather our opinions about them. Yes. And so to, to constantly be on the lookout for that. Whenever you get angry or frightened, to take that as like a, a signal that it's time to dig deeper and try and look at what the underlying beliefs are or the underlying thoughts are that are making you angry or making you depressed or anxious. What's the thinking that's causing those feelings and noticing that and then also noticing how our behavior is interacting with those things is the key to mindfulness and uh, self-control yeah no i i this last one is the one that actually i'm trying uh, slowly try to get better on this because by thinking that we we th there are situations that we have uh, no control over and but we still have the control of how we react and this when you realize this that even in situations that are very unfortunate you still have a chance to react in a better way yeah you can choose what happens next or what you do next what you do in response to that's where your freedom comes into play um most of the things that happen in life aren't under our control like there are very few things in life that are directly under our control. The only things that are direct, the universe is huge, right? It's really big. Mm -hmm. Like, there are like, like, there are billions of people on the planet and none of them are under your direct control. Like, the only thing that, the bear is barely under your control to bend your little finger. Yeah, It seems like it is. <laughs> if you had a stroke, one day you might wake up and you can't move your fingers anymore. Yeah. So really, there's not much under your direct control or 100% under your control, except making decisions to do things and choosing um, what you're going to put your energy into or choosing how you're going to look at things, the stories or interpretations that you're going to tell yourself about things. You have this little um, circle of control that's your little kingdom, but it's very important because it's, you're the king of it. It's completely down to you. Um, and it's small. Like... All the other stuff that's going on, what's in the news, what other people say and do, that's their business. Mm -hmm. Like they control that. You can influence it if you're lucky. Like, but you can't always guarantee that you're gonna succeed. You you need to begin with where you have the leverage. Um, you need to begin with where your actions originate. And that's deep inside at the very center, yeah. the very, very core of your being, where all of your thoughts and voluntary actions originate and I still think we need to keep one eye constantly focused on like our volition our will and the decisions that we're making from moment to moment not lose sight of that because you know that's the steering wheel like that determines the direction that our life is taking Donald this was absolutely fantastic I, I love uh your work on, on stoicism thank you very much for taking the time to record this and to uh, teach more uh, the audience about uh, the importance of using those principles in life uh, i think that this is a, a a continuous improvement i got this book uh, i recommend everyone to get this one here how to think like a roman emperor there is another one that i got uh, this one actually i got in in ebook format which is Stoicism and the Art of Happiness is really good too. I think that this one is older than the Roman Emperor, right? Yeah. Yeah, this is really good too. It really focus on on some areas. I, I like that one as well. So thank you very much. Keep up the amazing work. Looking forward to read more of your books. I appreciate your time.
Well, thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Donna. All right, everyone. This is a wrap for today's episode. Thank you very much and see you.